there is a new trend that I was just made aware of today. I guess I was aware of it before, but uh, I feel like it's up our alley, although it's mostly in women's wear. Um, but a friend contacted me today that they're writing a piece on uh, panta boots, which uh, their piece is how to wash a panta boot. Are you familiar with what a panta boot no, what is? What the fuck is a panta boot? Like, I know what a paraboot is. It's not a paraboot. I know what a parachute. I know what a parachute is. So they've been made popular by uh, Julia Fox and uh, Kim Kardashian lately, and it's the next trend in denim, or I guess just in in general, like below the waist wear. But it is uh, high heels built into pants. Ah, just like going full Catwoman. Full Catwoman. Mm. I mean, that's all this is, right? It's kind of just like full Catwoman. Am I crazy to say that? Maybe, but there there a lot of them are made out of denim. These leather ones are are more Catwoman for sure. It's uh, like Balenciaga and Saint Laurent are the ones doing them right now, but I feel like it's just a matter of time before they find their way onto uh, like Shine and Boohoo and things like that. But right now, you have to pay like three thousand dollars to get a Panta boot. You gotta have so much trust in your like previous Shine pur- purchases to be buying something that like if that goes wrong ankle wise, like you are so fucking toast. Like speaking as someone who's recently recovered from an ankle injury, like. Like you, you're really in trouble, aren't you? Like you have zero give. Like it's just kind of like what happens happens at that point. Yeah, well, and and also the size of the waist and the size of the the shoe have to equal. Like I, I, these must have to be made custom for people because like you can't just buy one off the rack and you like probably get like some like like they could probably just make it out of like lycra that looks like or like some spandex that looks like denim. I I guess what I assumed when I seen these before was that you could you were just like wearing boots and then and then like they like slipped through them you know but that's not they're, they're no they're integrated. stitched together it is one cohesive piece they're called pant like that's not slang for it they're actually called the panta they're actually called panta boots that is the, the the terminology for them and it is very like batman returns catwoman is the look here um so the, the subject of the piece my friend is writing is how to wash these. And that's why they got in touch with me. It was like, okay, you're the denim person. How do you wash a pair of panta boots? Because it seems impossible. Like, you can't put these in the washing machine. They've got, like, leather-soled high heels on them. Mm-hmm. I think if, if you're paying $3,000 for panta boots, I think it's like you wear them for the thing you're wearing them for and never think about them again. Yeah, like I don't even know if you integrate them into. I think you're so rich that you have like three thousand dollar throwaways. That is the the conclusion that I came to. It's like they're designed to last the longevity of the trend, which is not so long that like you would have to wash them. It's oh my god, this is yeah, this is actually interesting. Quite like, do you just do the top area like in the bath or the sink? And hang dry them like the part. Yeah, that's the what boot. I would say is like you just like lay them into the the bathtub and like keep the heels out off the edge, and then you hang dry them. But then also like I imagine they would be more likely to get dirty from like body funk, because like you can't really air them out because like one of the ends is capped, and like the shoes can't dry out really because like they've got they're attached to pants. There's no airflow. This is a fantastic point. You know, call me old-fashioned, but I think you should wear your panta boots daily for six months before you wash them to get the fades in. Give them so, an ocean soak. 
Yeah, yeah. I want some raw panta boots. <laughs> we we actually recommend you bathe in your panta boots. Just like yeah. you wear them into the bathtub, walk them dry. Yeah, you're gonna want to shrink to fit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, for that shoes too. <laughs> you're never seeing your legs again. Once you put these on, it's done. It's over. You just turn to a centaur. <laughs> wow. Uh, Julia Fox, if you're listening, could you let us know how you're washing these? This look, I think, makes most sense in a non-denim fabric. I think it look it looks better in these kinds of like crazy yellow rubbery Monsters Inc. fits that <laughs> Julia Fox is putting together. You know, you think like, those are better. I like. I think look. <laughs> yeah, fucking Mike Wazowski. But you know what I'm. I mean, I it's just. It's so dramatic and intense. It looks like with the leather, it's very Catwoman with, you know, with a, a, another fabric, it's kind of more high fashion. But in a in a jean, it's kind of funny. It's like trying to make it more everyday wearable. But like, as we've discussed, that's probably not practical with something like this. I feel like if I saw someone in real life wearing the denim ones, I would like think I was having a stroke. I just or like having a migraine or something and like my my senses were failing me. I mean I can try to head to Soho soon and give a scene report, see if I could like a panaboot spotting mission. And welcome back to Blowout. As always, it is me, David Shuck, here with Albert Muskies and Reed Nelson. How are we doing today, folks? We're, it, seems, it seems we're both in different stages of ankle injuries, but we're, we're hanging in there. Would you say we're pantastic? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. <laughs> I'll laugh. Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> That's not the hill I want to die on today. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we got a great episode here today. We got an interview coming up with uh, Charles McFarlane, who uh, was kind enough to come on and talk to us about the ethics of camouflage. Going back a couple weeks ago, we had a discussion about Burberry's use of Wehrmacht-esque Nazi camouflage patterns in their winter collection, and that put me back in touch with Charles McFarlane, who is one of the most well-informed individuals I know on pretty much all things military uniforms. Oh, uh, Charles, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, maybe you overstated my my expertise a little bit. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I do know quite a few people that are into military uniforms. And I remember like on our last discussion a couple of years ago, just being like, wow, this is a completely different approach rather than just like these things look neat. And these are the details that think <laughs> look neat. It's like you're yeah, a... Yeah. Uh, Second year's master's student in costume studies at NYU, and uh, it, having the, the log line here, research focuses on intersection of military uniforms and popular fashion, and the soldier as a consumer of fashion. So you've been a contributor at GQ, Put This On, Gear Patrol, our own site Heddles, and uh, have a, a sub-stack of your own called Combat Threads. Um, so just with that academic background, um, I was interested at first in how you got to be a, a military clothing aficionado and uh, what, what got you into it? Um, well, I started collecting uh, military uniforms at like a really young age. Like I'm kind of like I'm, I'm 28 now. I'm kind of on that like cusp of 
the generation like kind of a little bit older than me who got really into like you know capital v vintage you know like that kind of whole generation um but yeah i started collecting like really young age like around like seven eight um continued to collect and then you know ended up going to going to college uh did my um undergrad in history and wrote my undergrad thesis on field jackets so like kind of the uh the cultural history of uh military field jackets specifically you know american field jackets um and then yeah i worked in journalism media you know um for a while and then like everybody else in the pandemic got laid off um and i could finally go back to school which is something i really wanted to do um so kind of you know yeah thankfully i was able to go back and kind of continue this uh this journey yeah Mm. was there a specific piece that got you into it is i think collecting at seven or eight is probably a bit younger than most of the people that have gotten into it was it like a was it a field jacket Did you happen to cross an m65 or find some old like navy dungarees or something well my parents are like big like antique people you know like they were like going to brimfield like in the 80s and 90s so i was kind of like around old stuff all the time and kind of like being you know a kind of young kid in the 90s like you know i don't know i was just like attracted to like military stuff like the way like a lot of like you know kids in our culture are you know and but like you know, instead of being around like plastic you know military stuff i was around like the real thing in antique stores so i started like gravitating towards it that way what was your seven eight-year-old media diet that was that was <laughs> that was drawing you in to that that's world. such a good question <laughs> yeah i um i i famously and then like not to like make this like so biographical um i didn't know tv came in color until about the age of seven oh because okay. all my parents watched was like mostly like turner classic movies and tv land so i was like already pretty well versed in like the classic war films by by the age of like 12 you know <laughs> You're like watching Bridge on the River Kwai and <laughs> literally exactly that. Yeah. Charles, it sounds like you and I had a similar upbringing. Yeah. I've been, I've been wearing my trousers at the waist my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if you give some background too on the community of uh, military folks, because in yeah. my yeah. experience, there's sort of a split between like, as you say, the capital V vintage folks that some of which are into it, but most of like, this is a way I can make money. And then they're the people that are like reenactors that are into it and the people that are in fashion. And you seem to straddle, I guess, all of the worlds of that community. Yeah. Yeah. I've never really thought about it in that way, but like, I think that's kind of like right on the mark. Um, like, you know, I, I probably should have said this earlier. Like I have done reenacting, like, you know, in my like teens to like early to mid twenties, I'm still like pretty active except for like COVID. Um, so like, I'm definitely like in that world. Um, I'd say like the biggest difference um, that like I can spot, right. is like mostly like the capital, like V vintage folks. And like a lot of times, like the reenactor folks, they like really like focus on stuff that's like aesthetically pleasing and also kind of like collectorisms names, you know, that's something that like really drove me to study clothing, like as an academic <laughs> pursuit was like being very fed up with, people kind of, you know, relying on these kind of, you know, old wives tales that get passed down from generation to generation about, you know, why a certain camo looks a certain way, or like why a certain piece of equipment is designed in this way, things like that, that always like really frustrated me or like collector names, names that like aren't like linked to the actual, um, like development or actual naming convention of something. Um, 
So yeah, I'd say like they focus definitely in that realm. And then like academic folks, I think mostly focus on, you know, kind of the, uh, like the real like science of camo. Um, so like kind of, you know, stuff around, um, like <laughs> stuff around like infrared, you know, light and camouflage things around, um, you know, kind of like, how can you better design a camo to like conceal, you know, conceal. So not really thinking about, um, the aesthetics at all. Um, and kind of like that realm. And I guess in, in vintage folks are like people that are interested in like studying military clothing, like you're doing in NYU's uh, costumes program. It's like, this is something that I'm sort of familiar with that I've heard about it, but I haven't really talked extensively to anyone that's been in the program. Could you give some background on what that's like and what uh, your studies have entailed? Are you, you going deeper on field jackets or like, what is the, what is the degree encompass for anyone listening that might want to be interested in going deeper? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, a lot of different people are attracted to the program. Like, I, I think that's something that I really enjoy about it is it's not just kind of people who are coming right out of undergrad. Like, there's a lot of costume designers in it. There's a lot of people who work in the fashion industry. There are a lot of academics as well. It's a real, like, interesting mix of people and really interesting mix of ages. So you can really make it what you want. I mean, it's a master's program, right? So, um, you know, the, the research that some of my... Um, the people in my cohort are doing like ranges from uh, like children's clothing in the 1950s to like morning attire in the African-American community, like in the nineties to present day. So there really is like quite a range of, of uh, research interest and you can like really pursue all of that. Mm. Is there a focus for you specifically? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, kind of, as you said, like I focus on, um, on military um, uniforms and especially like how they enter our own like fashion ecosystem. Um, so like some of the stuff that I've been working on recently is, you know, the um, how military surplus ended up on college campuses post world war II through the 1960s and seventies. Right. So like kind of how does it go from returning veterans after world war II wearing field jackets to class to, you know, people mostly involved in like the anti-war movement or counterculture movements in the 1960s wearing field jackets on campuses in the 1960s. Like what's that journey look like and how does that same article of clothing like convey different meanings throughout these decades? Mm. Very cool. Oh yeah. That should uh, give us some background here as we get onto the camo. Sure. Yeah. yeah, as, As mentioned, you got in touch after our discussion of Burberry's use of, like Flectarn, like Wehrmacht-esque camo in their fall collection. And as someone with a much deeper understanding on the subject than we had when we were just sort of riffing on it a few <laughs> weeks ago, uh, what is your take on it? I mean, like, uh, when you first saw the images, what was your gut reaction? You know, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, like, when I was listening to you guys, like, I had to, like, Google right away and, like, look at, like, see what was going on because, you know, as you know, as we all know, podcasting is a real visual medium. Um, <laughs> try. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like I wasn't that shocked. Like I, I definitely wasn't as taken aback as you guys seemed. Um, and I think that's mostly because like, it definitely kind of registered to me as being like a Flectarn like derivative. Mm-hmm. And to me, like Flectarn in general, like isn't problematic. I mean, like we're kind of like already wading into it. Right. Like, Mm-hmm. So many camouflage patterns, you know, I mean, the vast majority of camouflage patterns that were used in the 20th century, you know, find their roots in, you know, German World War II patterns, right? Like, 
you know, as, as a country that was, you know, and a regime that was like investing a lot of time into different patterns post world war II, there were a lot of, um, a lot of countries taking from their playbook and from their design catalogs to try to like figure out like, how do we make a camouflage? Right. Like, what do you need to look for? How does it need to look like, well, the Germans, you know, did a lot of that kind of legwork. Mm. And for me, like Flectarn, you know, very much lives outside of like the world war two context. Right. So like, you know, Flectarn is like introduced. I mean, uh, the research on it is like happening in the 1970s and it's like first introduced widespread in the 1990s. And like, you know, you can find it really like anywhere now, as far as like, you know, in the, um, in like the surplus markets market, right? Like I'm sure if, you know, um, for us, like in Brooklyn, like if you kind of went down to L train vintage, like you'd be able to find some, some Flectarn like right away, you know, like it's, it's out there and there's a lot of it. Um, so for me, like, yeah, it really lives in that space. And then, you know, kind of <laughs> not to like, keep, kind of keep on going, but like, for me, yeah, it lives there. Like Nike does like Flectarn, like, you know, sneakers when they do like their national camouflage sneaker collections that they do, you know, mm. the, the Danes use it. Like, it's not just German, you know, other countries have used it. Belgium has, Belgium has used it a little bit. Like Japan has their own version. Um, there's commercial copies, you know, in Russia and in China, like, again, like there's just a lot of it out there. It's very diluted, right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel as like purely connected to, um, like it's development. It, it's, it's early stages of development that definitely did happen <laughs> during world war two. Right. He's like, it does have a lot of that, like plain tree and M 44 P dot camo, you know, in it. Right. You can see it. Um, now all of that, you know, kind of all of that aside, <laughs> One of the reasons why I wouldn't wear Flectarn in general is that, you know, it has now been adopted by specifically like one neo-Nazi group that's active in the U S and, you know, in that way, (laughs) it's like becoming now problematic, but like, yeah, you know, it's like one of those things, right. Where it's like, it's close enough to the world war II patterns that this neo-Nazi group feels an affinity for it. Which is a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, no, awful sign, right? <laughs> but like, that's also a very like small thing, right? Like, I right. mean, like that group of neo Nazis is a relatively small one. Yeah, God, that sounds that sounds pretty <laughs> rough. But like, <laughs> yeah, even one is too many. Like relative to other groups, very small. <laughs> I guess I think what I think it might have seemed naive, but I think just. I think that I, you know, in my own research, I've, I think, or I think any, any kind of inquiring mind could, could, um, could track the kind of problematic contexts that various patterns have. I mean, who even perhaps even this one I'm wearing has some dark history and probably does. Um, but like, you know, I I guess I assumed because I knew of Flectarn in that kind of seventies German context from a, an administration that was so desperate to kind of distance themselves from their Nazi past. So that's why I was shocked that like anything could have been worn nationally in the army that would have had a Nazi context. But again, that was, that could have been naive, especially because that was when so much, so many advancements were happening in, in camo development. So it caught me by surprise. Yeah. And I do think there's a thing like, you know, it's not like they kind of adopted that pattern, like right after World War Two. I mean, right after World War Two, like, you know, German camouflage stocks were being used by the French, by the Dutch, 
by um, like other European nations that you know were on the Allied side, you know, in their you know mostly wars for you know continued colonial control. But like you know, in the very immediate post-war period, you know, it, it was kind of up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like that kind of goes to like how we even like define if it's problematic or not. Like it, we're obviously like bringing like our own bias as you know <laughs> as Americans, right? Like I don't think anyone on the call thinks like you know maybe like Ertl which is like kind of the uh, like the precursor to Woodland is like inherently problematic. But like, you know, I, I think maybe if you asked, um, you know, someone whose family, you know, was in the Central Highlands in Vietnam, you know, growing up, you know, and they saw that pattern in a very different context. I don't know if they'd have that same answer. Very fair. So you did, and I guess that's what your your point getting back to of like these are military uniforms that are designed to be worn by people while they're like committing acts of violence. That's sort of the point of it. So there aren't really any specifically friendly versions of of camouflage. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's kind of something that I keep in the back of my mind, actually, pretty much in the front of my mind all the time. Which is at the end of the day, you know, this stuff is designed to be worn, you know, while engaged in combat right mm-hmm. like you know for you know projecting national power right like you know there's really no two ways about it i mean it can be subverted right and like we see that happen you know over and over and over again and i think that's like you know one of the beauties of you know camouflage right and the way that it can transcend um you know and, and be adopted by different groups um but mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's something that was designed for a very specific act and you, know, you can't really lose sight of that. So, Albert, you got to pick between colonialism or registered up fascism, I guess. Like, that's <laughs> worst, best case, worst case for you on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the, that's the big, the big choices we make. Um, that's why I'm sticking to my, I'm sticking to my Swiss camo that I have. And then just my True olive neutral drab. camo. Oh, well, yeah. actually, that's kind of funny you bring up, like, the, like, oh, Swiss no. camo. Like, <laughs> no, no, because, like, when I was, like, kind of, like, brushing up on some stuff, like, you know, before uh, the call. And, you know, like, everyone knows that pattern. Again, like, that's a pattern that has just entered, like, the surplus secondhand, you know, clothing market in such quantity that it's just, it, it's everywhere, especially mm-hmm. in the U.S. Um, now, like, you know, kind of, if you really follow kind of the, uh, the root of development on that, like it definitely has roots in, you know, Nazi camo, right? Like I think what is it called? Like, um, um, Liebermunster, which is like, I guess like the, the family name, but like, you know, they, they were basically like working on like camos at the very end of the war mm-hmm. and like, you can definitely see it. Right. So mm-hmm. again, like none of this stuff is clean, you know, like it, it, it's not, I mean, it's funny, like, um, yeah, I, I wrote this piece about um, about real tree camo and kind of like how it's become like very popular in like you know the kind of more um, the more hip corners of New York um, and like you know we were kind of like working through like w- different interviews I was doing like why this camo versus other camos and something that like a source like said to me that I thought was really interesting is like well like maybe people don't want to wear a camo that was designed to like kill other people. Like mm-hmm. a camo that was designed to kill like an animal, like it's slightly better, right? I mean, unless you're a militant vegan, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, yeah, it's like real trees, like the, the Duck Dynasty, like uh, like Bass Pro Shops looking camo for for like people that aren't familiar. Yeah, and then obviously, like you know, I think the way you explain that, I think 
tease up, you know, kind of the the tension in that camera, which is that, you know, it does have, um, you know, in our country, like some political valence to it, right? Like it doesn't, yeah. um, it's not neutral. And like now, like even with, um, you know, like just looking at photos and videos coming out of Ukraine right now, like I'm seeing Realtree out there. So like, you know, it's definitely, it's being used in conflicts, you know? So again, like none of this stuff is clean. And there seems to be two levels of like uh, issues with it. There's the one of like, was it developed by um, some politically like abhorrent or like war criminal uh, type government? Or like, has it been adopted by a like neo-Nazi or like fascist militant group today? It's like, it's the historical context versus the current context. So like you said that you would avoid Flectarn because like, I don't know, you might be at a bar and some guy is like, hey, I really like the pattern of your jacket. Wink, wink. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, totally. I mean, I'd like to think that I'm not at those kind of bars, but you know, uh, you never know here. Yeah, uh, where you least expect. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to that point, right? Like, I think like the camo that like I think is that you see a lot and like a lot of versions of that um, people seem okay to okay wearing that I think is you know kind of like problematic would be like the uh like brush stroke right mm. like kind of the, that's a real catch-all term though right but like yeah. specifically like rhodesian b- brush stroke mm-hmm. right and that's like you know it, for people who don't know like that's like what the country that is now like zimbabwe was rhodesia and was you know an apartheid state that kind of made south africa look like a picnic and you know fought a very awful war you know the bush wars from 1964 to 1979 and like, you know, like that's a pretty abhorrent regime and pretty abhorrent camouflage. And unlike a, say, like even like other nation state camouflages, like that is a state that, you know, basically was at war for its whole existence and with a very specific, like, you know, goal in mind, right? Like, yeah, I think you can make arguments about like, you know, um, I'm trying to think like, like a French camo, right? It's like, you know, like it's, it's a nation that has a standing army you know, this army has been around for a very long time. It does a lot of stuff. It does a lot of messed up stuff, but like, this is a country that, you know, really it, it existed for one reason, one reason only. And that was for like white minority rule. Right. Yeah. You know, you see a lot of that camo and like derivatives of that camo around in like kind of the capital F fashion space. And, you know, there's also a lot of people who, you know, are in the kind of, you know, right wing neo-nazi world that like really like idolize rhodesia and like talk about rhodesia a lot and like specifically like look towards like the the camouflage and like the imagery of rhodesia as something to like hold up and admire so that's like that's a camo that like i find very hard to stomach yeah yeah i have a big pair of the I was given a bunch of this camo at the same time. And one of the pieces that I received was a pair of Belgian brushstroke pants, which I just would simply would not wear because of I, I feel like at least in my mind, that's connected very much to the Congo and Belgian rule there. Um, If I may be mistaken, but that's sort of my, that's my correlation. And so I don't really think it's appropriate for me to wear. Just, yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely not wrong like about Mm -hmm. like that kind of being the connection um i think for me like you know it gets a little again all this kind of gets a little dicey right or like kind of again like the more you pull back so like both like rhodesian brushstroke and like belgian brushstroke 
like they find their roots in British brushstroke and like very early camouflage during World War II. So like, you know, if you, if you have like, you know, some World War II brushstroke, you know, again, like I would feel comfortable wearing that, but you know, does everybody know that like, it's like, Hey guys, no, it's like, I'm wearing, I'm wearing mm-hmm. the, the British brushstroke. This is 1940s. <laughs> like you yeah. back off here. But. This is the camo that fought fascism, not the camo that upheld, you know, an apartheid state. You know, you, mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, so much of it comes down to like, how are people viewing you? How do you feel like you're being viewed? And like, is there any room for someone to be confused? We live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes, you just need to slow down and stop. Heddles Plus, the noon membership program of exclusive content, giveaways, discounts, and a community chat forum. Try a month free with the code EXTRABLOWOUT. I was hoping here we could go through a few different camos, and I know, like, it's much more nuanced than, like, is this okay to wear or not, but, like, say in the context of like wearing it in uh, casually in a major American city, uh, would you feel like it would get you associated with neo-Nazis? <laughs> so well, we're going for specifically neo-Nazis, not that I like- suppose or like, you know, or any other, <laughs> not necessarily neo-Nazis, but the, the catch-all term, you know, like uh, squares and, and uh, rectangles here. Yeah. Like whatever that tier of pariah is like, (laughs) just like just that flat level. Like, yeah. Does wearing this say that I advocate for genocide? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to like answer these as best as I can. I will say like something that like I focus a lot on, like in my own research and thinking about this is like, and I've kind of brought up a few times here already is, you know, kind of like the, the context clues that you're picking that are, you know, are around that camo, right? Like, I'm sure like we all know that there's a difference between someone who wears like, you know, woodland camo in Soho versus someone who wears woodland camo, you know, in upstate New York. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just a different context. And like, you understand that as such, you know, I, that, that was kind of my, my, you know, my one caveat here is like, you know, I think you, you can show up in any camo pattern at a far right, you know, rally or like, you know, and we know, we know why you're wearing that camo. <laughs> We'll, we'll spitball. S- we'll spitball some context with the David. Will give you the fabric, and and then Reed and I will give you the, <laughs> yeah. the place and the time. Say like, I guess think of it like: or Would you be wearing it on a military type garment, or would it have like a big Supreme Box logo in the middle <laughs> of it? And, uh, <laughs> would that negate yeah, yeah. its, its yeah. effects? Because sure, yeah, they sure. have used a good number of camos. Uh, so like the first one I had that we talked about already is like Ertl or uh, Woodland, which are, are pretty much the same camo, the like classic, uh, like American issue in the like 60s in Vietnam. Like if you think of camo, like this is probably the one that first comes into your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't find that camo problematic, you know, in in the context of like, you know, 2022, like that's a camo that has been, you know, used by a lot of, you know, a lot of designers and people like kind of more in this world too, like in the, in the vintage world, you know, people love that pattern because it has like a really nice, like lime green, like especially like on the Lowland one, you know, which like mm-hmm. the green dominant, like it really pops. It, like it mm-hmm. looks like really, it, it's a nice looking pattern from like an aesthetic standpoint. So I think mm-hmm. like that pattern and like, like many of these patterns, 
you know, they've essentially become paisleys like in our culture, right? Like they're just mm-hmm. an all over print. That's a good way to think of it. And Ertl was developed by the United States, if, if memory yeah. serves. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like yeah, the development of that like, started in the late 40s and wasn't like seen on um, on garments until Vietnam, so, like kind of kind of late in Vietnam. Uh, like you'll probably find it mostly on, you know, cargo trousers and uh, like the kind of classic Vietnam jungle jacket. Mm-hmm. So we get a we get an okay on 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 Ertl <laughs> slash Woodland. Uh, we got into Multicam, another American developed one, which is I guess the the current issue, uh, and for a lot of uh, American militaries and I guess militaries around the world. Yeah, I mean this is a really interesting one because this is something I spend a lot of time on is Multicam um, and kind of like the. You know, kind of like as you said, like in the um, when you're introducing me, is like the idea of like the soldier as consumer, right? And kind of like, are there fashion trends in military uniforms? You know, and like I would, I argue yes, and I'd say like multicam is you know the best example of that, where you know essentially every nation now has some variant of multicam, and like we're seeing again, like kind of not to keep on bringing it back to like the headlines, but you know if you are looking at you know uh, video coming out of Ukraine right now. Everyone's wearing colored armbands because everybody wears the same camo. Like mm. a lot of Russians wear multicam. A lot of Ukrainians wear multicam. Like it, it, it's kind of, it, it, we've really like reached this like full saturation point where like multicam became like the, you know, the cool camo because mm. it was first used by like mostly like special forces in Afghanistan and then adopted by the American military then adopted by the well technically the british military adopted their own version before that um and it's really just like spread all over and it doesn't follow kind of the traditional um you know kind of we're all aligned on the same side here you know we're all going to wear camos that are kind of in the same in the same color scheme like you know everyone's wearing it from again like from like the russians to the georgians to you know the brits and you know yeah it's just everywhere Mm-hmm. Would that be an issue of like, are you broaching into stolen valor or something like that? If you're wearing multicam that people might think you're active duty. Um, yeah, sorry. I didn't really answer your question. <laughs> Thanks for bringing me back there. Um, I mean, again, I, I mean, you, you could, I mean, that's a camo that's like very highly associated with like, you know, vet bro culture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, tactical type stuff. Yeah exactly like and, and like that's saying that like you know originally what drove me to like start collecting like the british version which is like mtp because it's like slightly different i'm like i can mm-hmm. wear this i don't feel like someone's gonna be like oh this guy's like this guy's like really high speed you know <laughs> <Or> like, <laughs> something like that right um it like that feels a little bit like more distant from the american kind of like vet bro culture yeah yeah uh- Continuing with more recent camos about like Marpat or ACU or those like digicamos that I suppose had like a very small time in the sun before multicam was like, nah, this is way better and looks cooler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a whole story, right? About like how that happened. But um, kind of like keeping with that. No, I don't think that like is a, those are problematic patterns. You know, I'd say like I probably associate those patterns mostly with like people who are like actually doing work. You know, like a lot of construction workers wear like ACU and like Marpat. Like you see that a lot on construction sites. Um, it's it's definitely like a, a true surplus pattern. Mm-hmm. 
And getting a bit older, we talked about breaststroke. That's that's a no, um, unless it's you can confirm that it's uh, British and uh, it, from the nineteen forties or earlier. But uh, how about the the variant of it? Where I don't know, maybe you consider it a variant of tiger stripe. Again, very interesting. Like you know, kind of setup that you're saying. Like it's a it's a variant, right? Like kind of the the development of tiger stripe is like a very fascinating story that hasn't really been told in its entirety yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely some brushstroke in there. There's a little lizard in there too. Like kind of all, again, so much camo in the 20th century is derivative of other camo. Um, to that, I mean, tiger stripe is like the capital F fashion pattern. I mean, mm -hmm. that, like we're in the year of the tiger right now. You're going to see a lot of like fashion brands dropping tiger stripe this year. Like I've already started to see it. Mm. So probably more in the clear because it's just, as you said, diluted by, it's like this was mostly worn in, it was, was worn a lot in Vietnam by American forces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely like heavily associated with Vietnam. And you know, something that surprisingly we haven't brought up yet, right, is like film and like TV. Like, you know, because of, you know, movies like um, Apocalypse Now, you know, like that movie really put Tiger Stripe on the map for like a certain generation of, you know, people. Um, but yeah, American forces never were issued tiger stripe you know uniforms they they bought tiger stripe uniforms they wore it um kind of in the early years advising um the arvins like you know the, the army of the republic of vietnam um who had their own versions of tiger stripe that was issued um again like i'm kind of like i'm kind of butchering a little bit of that history but what you need to know is that tiger stripe for american you know military that was something that was bought um it wasn't something that was issued uh, well, moving out of the United States, how about raindrop onto the the Eastern Bloc? Mm. Um, you know, I feel like raindrops okay. Again, like I haven't done a lot of research on that one in particular. Um, I want to say that that's probably fine. Again, something that feels very um, present in the secondhand clothing market. You know, you're going to find a lot of it out there. Um, so in that way doesn't really feel associated with uh with anything you know any nation state uh that's like you know committing war crimes right mm -hmm. and how about splinter uh something similar to what uh albert has on today uh-oh put him in the hot seat yeah i mean you're like that kind of is definitely like kind of a cross between like splinter and like a woodland type right um but splinter again like Splinter kind of has a little bit of, it, of its like origins in, you know, Nazi Germany. Um, so in that way, Albert, you know, in that way, <laughs> in that way, maybe, but again, it's all about like, you know, you're not wearing that version, right? You're like, you're not wearing a reproduction of, you know, a Nazi camo. You're mm -hmm. wearing something that, you know, came afterwards, something that was, you know, built upon it. Um, you know, like there's plenty of stuff outside of camo, right. That like, you know, we, continue to, to use and develop and it, it changes its meanings. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just a couple more here. No, uh, no I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's great. Chocolate chip, which is <laughs> a, a bit uh, more problematic six, than it might sound. Six color uh, desert. Yeah. I mean like famously used um, in uh, the Gulf war, the first Gulf war, 1991. Um, again, a pattern that has been used so much in like the fashion space, right? Like it, because it is a very, um, 
I think again, like that pattern is very aesthetically pleasing, right? Like mm-hmm. it, designers were definitely attracted to that pattern to like do those chocolate chips that technically those chocolate chips are supposed to be, um, the shadows of stones, um, in a desert. But, uh, yeah, like Supreme has done chocolate chip. Um, a lot of other places have, I don't necessarily think it's problematic again, huge in the secondhand market. Okay. And finally dazzle <laughs> the personal <laughs> favorite. <laughs> I mean, dazzle is not really like a pattern, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, dazzle, they never really made, they never made uniforms in dazzle, like, you know, uh, mass produced anyway, right? Just Something might big be boats. made. Yeah. Painted <laughs> big boats. Um, and like, obviously has a very important place in like the history of camouflage development. Um, I mean, yeah, man. I mean, color block all you want, you know, wear, <laughs> wear dazzle. Okay. Great. I feel like I'm bringing out some dazzle today, perhaps. I mean, <laughs> I think similar to it. It's the, the closest I got here. Yeah, Charles, what are the, like the, like if you could say like four or five pieces of like vintage military uh, or whatever the pattern may be that you think are like essential for like any collector of menswear, what would you, what would those pieces be? For like collecting or for like wearing? Uh, probably wearing the wearing side of collecting. Yeah. Okay. So let's see. Um, I'm going to like, it's going to be mostly not camo probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say like the M 51 field jacket is like a real sleeper that like, you know, everyone kind of, you know, everyone knows the M 65. A lot of people know the M 43, you know, I think the M 51 has like the best design elements of both combined and none of like the drawbacks. Right. So it's like, doesn't have like the big open lapel collar. It has like a classic like shirt collar. It has a zip, not just buttons. Um, and it doesn't have like the dumb Velcro thing at the bottom of the the sleeve that the M65 has. So like for my money, like that's the best, you know, um, military field jacket. Um, I've got one. I'd I all... love it. I will endorse that opinion. It's, it's the Serpico <laughs> jacket. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, you know, a brand like Alpha Industries, which like, you know, obviously famously makes, you know, um, military uniforms like that's the kind of their whole brand or like used to. Yeah, they've done a really good job, I think, of like conveying the M65 as being like the field jacket, you know, because like they made the M65 and they still do. But like, you know, if you go back and like you're looking at photos from the 1960s, from the 1970s, it's mostly M51s, you know, it's not M65. Um, and like, you know, in that way, I think, you know, it, it's interesting from like a marketing perspective that like that's really become like the de facto, you know, field jacket. Um, Let's see what else. Bomber jackets. Do you feel like uh, the MA1, <laughs> I feel like, is sort of the same position as like the M65 of being the de facto like flight jacket? Yeah. I mean, I think like that, that's like a, yeah, again, like it's just been made into oblivion, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, it's completely like unrooted from its, you know, military like heritage at this point. Um, you know, I like the, uh, like the, um, the L2B, which is like slightly different, um, and the L2A, like those two, um, yep. those are, those are nice. <laughs> I have a, yeah, uh, Nomex, um, CWU45P, which is like usually my go-to like winter coat. And it was, I got it for $20 cause like everyone was buying MA1s like eight yeah, years ago yeah. when I got it. Those are good ones too. I, I bought one a few years ago. Um, definitely like super comfy and like. I love those big patch pockets in the front. Um, 
just like great design elements on that and definitely a sleeper um for sure especially if you're getting like some of the early contract ones before they start like doing like um like some of the the lining changes i think slightly um so like it's kind of nice getting kind of the earlier ones um definitely um like you know og 107 trousers um you know, like some people kind of you know are like oh like it needs to be that version versus this version you know i wrote the piece on heddles about them <laughs> you know i think they're um you know I, I think they're great no matter which ones just don't get the um the og 507s which are the um or is it the 508 god i'm butchering that one the ones that have yellow tags everybody stay away from those ones those are the poly blend you know 100 percent cotton yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can find our version that Stan Ray makes on shop.heddles.com. Oh, I didn't Ten, know you guys stocked Stan Ray. I got, we got stocked bad, Stan Ray, and we've got the, bad the guest. their version of the OG 107 top and bottom fatigues. Oh, nice. I love Stan Ray. Mm-hmm. I think they, they do great stuff. Um, God, sorry, I'm like looking at my clothing rack now. <laughs> this is like the worst podcasting ever. Um <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I definitely wear like an M51 a lot. Um, I wear like OG 107s a lot. Um, I also wear um, these like post Korean War wool shirts that like I, I don't know the actual nomenclature like off the top of my head. Uh, Except the raglan shoulders. Yeah, yeah, those are cool. with like a crazy collar on it, and like mm. they're cut really short. Like those are some of the best like layering pieces you can get. Like for you know like twenty bucks. I think those are like just absolutely amazing, um, like wool shirts. They're also like their wool nylon blend, so you can like throw them in the washing machine. It's great. Sounds like the theme here is olive drab. <laughs> no camo. Yeah, I mean, again, like I kind of feel like the um, the camo stuff I have is either like I, I own a lot of reproduction camo stuff, especially like tiger stripe, um, like Arvin airborne stuff. Like I really like those reproductions but like those aren't vintage mm-hmm. um yeah Ertl Ertl jungle jacket can't go wrong um i mean those are just like such a perfect jacket too you know it's like you can kind of wear as like a chore jacket essentially all right well thank you so much for joining us charles uh where can people find more of your work uh or anything that you'd like to to plug as you mentioned i have a uh, Substack, um combat threads um, you can find me on instagram on that and also yeah on Substack combat threads um where like i really i i look a lot at like history but also a lot of stuff that's going on right now and kind of like try to talk about camo and military uniforms that are you know kind of in the culture Blowout. Thank you for joining us. Uh, any questions, comments, concerns, or you want to see if your camo is problematic, read what is our email address? Blowout at heddles.com. Thank you. And Albert, what do we got new in the Heddles shop? Well, David, glad you asked. We got House of Blanks in the shop. Uh, we also have some of our restocked Stan Ray still available. We have incoming french workwear that is not here yet but will hopefully be here soon and you're gonna love it and um we have shaco uh atelier in and we have a new jewelry brand coming as well very soon and we have battenware battenware shirts 
Yes, those Battenware BD Scout shirts are quite choice. And I don't think those are going to last for too long. So uh, get on those mm-hmm. soon. With They're going to vibe shift out of the heddle shop. You can't just say vibe shift for everything, Reed. <laughs> <laughs> you really got to get that on the uh, soundboard. You can vibe shift your browser over to shop.heddles.com <laughs> and use the code blowout for 10% off your order. Wow, you're a menace. <laughs> just, <laughs> just a Thank linguistic you. vandal. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>